0: Section 9 of The Bible Under Trial This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Gillian Hendry The Bible Under Trial by James Orr Israel's God and Worship, Parts 1-2 to two. Dr. F. Dillich has expressively described the Wellhausen theory by saying that its effect has been to quote, "lift off its hinges the history of worship and literature in israel as hitherto accepted" End quote. footnote zeitschrift 1880 page 279 and footnote what was at the top it shifts to the bottom it is not however simple change of place that is in question The new theory not only inverts the Bible's own account of Israel's history and institutions, it cancels that history in large part altogether, and proposes for acceptance another wholly reconstructed view of the development of religious ideas and laws among the Hebrews. Some points in this radically changed and avowedly revolutionary theory of religion have already been before us. It is now necessary to give it closer attention, in its contrast with the view presented in the Bible itself. It has already been shown that the nerve of the new theory is the idea of natural evolution. The more believing scholars recognise the inadequacy of this principle to fit the facts, and, accepting the framework of the scheme, work into it the idea of revelation to explain the higher elements in the prophetic teaching. But the originators and leading expounders of the theory Kunin, Wellhausen, Dom, Sment, Stade, Gute, and so on, know nothing of any revelation other than is given in the development of the inherent powers of man's religious nature. As Kunin states it in a typical passage, So soon as we derive a separate part of Israel's religious life directly from God and allow the supernatural or immediate revelation to intervene, in even one single point, so long also our view of the whole continues to be incorrect. It is the supposition of a natural development alone which accounts for all the phenomena. End quote. Footnote, Prophets and Prophecy, page 4. End footnote. Kunin's own book on the religion of Israel is constructed on this principle, and it is from this basis whatever modifications more earnestly-minded men may introduce into it, and these leave much to be desired, that the theory as a whole is to be understood. As recent popular expositions of this theory by writers who do in some degree accept the idea of revelation may be mentioned Mr. Addis's Hebrew Religion to the Establishment of Judaism under Ezra, already noticed, and Professor Karl Marty's religion of the old testament footnote die religion des Alten testaments unter den religionen des Vorderen orients and footnote it was seen in an earlier paper how vigorously the foundations of this theory of religion in its successive stages of nomad or bedouin agricultural not settled life in canaan and not prophetic and legal religion were assailed by h vinkler in his Eisenach address. Winkler himself represents the not less extreme, but very opposite view, that the higher religious ideas in Israel's religion, its monotheism included, were largely an inheritance from Babylonia. They came in, however, at the beginning, not at the end, of Israel's history. The reaction has done good service in that it has set critical writers on the task of very vigorously defending the uniqueness and originality of Israel's religion, thereby strengthening the hold on the idea of revelation, while the Winkler school is not less effectually disposing of many of the false assumptions that underlie the Velhalsen scheme of the history and religion. I shall keep these instructive conflicts in view in the defence of the biblical representation, which reaps its advantage from both. Part 1 The way is now open for sketching, as briefly as I can, the outlines of this new theory of the religion of Israel. It is important to notice at the outset how much at once drops out. The patriarchal period, for example in Mr Addis's sketch, wholly disappears. Certain writers, as Dr Driver, recognise a kernel of historical truth in the patriarchal narratives. How much, how little is never clear. But the prevailing tendency is to resolve the whole into tribal legend, in which nothing remains but vague reminiscences of tribal movements and ideas and events of later times thrown back into the form of family history. How can it be otherwise, it is asked, when the narratives are perhaps a thousand years later than the traditions which they record and embellish. Of patriarchal religion in the biblical sense, therefore, there can be no speech. What takes its place is a congeries of Semitic superstitions, inferred from analogy and stray hints in the narratives. Belief in the haunting presence of ghosts and spirits, in the animation of natural objects as stones, wells, trees, animal worship, ancestor worship, use of amulets and charms, and so on. Professor Couch calls the pre-Mosaic religion polydemonism and thinks that, at this stage, God can hardly be spoken of. Of Israel itself, or the tribes of which it came to be composed, nothing up to this point is supposed to be positively known. The nomadic life led some of these tribes into Egypt, and there they fell into bondage. The history of Israel as a nation begins with the Mosaic Age. It is a moot question, as already seen, how far Moses is to be recognised as a real personage at all. Writers like Chain and Meyer deny his historical existence, but most allow him a more or less shadowy reality and activity. Those who go farthest regard him as the leader who, in the name of Yahweh, Jehovah, first gathered the tribes into a unity, led them out of Egypt and across the Red Sea, then pledged them at Sinai to some kind of covenant with Yahweh. How the Israelites got out of Egypt, escaped pursuit, and effected the crossing of the sea, ascribed to a happy coincidence, is got over by phrases, but is not satisfactorily explained. Who Yahweh was, a god of the Kenites, a new god to the Israelites, possibly a god known earlier in some of the tribes, is again a moot question. Cunin identifies Yahweh with Moloch. A favourite view is that he was the storm god of Sinai. In any case, he became henceforth the god of Israel. He was in no sense the sole god, nor was thought of as such by his worshippers. He was one amongst many, the god of this particular people, a tribal god, like Chemosh of Moab. So also he continued to be till the days of the prophets. It does not follow that, though the personality of Moses is allowed, the history given of him in the Pentateuchal books is accepted. The opposite is the case. The lawgiver's personality and work are enveloped in the folds of late legend, through the mists of which we can make out little that is certain regarding him the one thing sure is that most of the things we are told about him did not happen the narratives in exodus Kunan informs us are quote, "utterly unhistorical" end quote. footnote Exeter, page 42 and footnote he may have laid the foundations of law by his oral decisions exodus chapter 18 but he certainly did not receive or write or convey to Israel any of the codes of law connected with his name. His connection with legislation is a late tradition. He did not give the Decalogue, for there was no thought at that stage of forbidding worship by images. Yahweh remained the god of the tribes, but what is told of the mode of his worship is mostly post exilian fiction. There may, for example, have been an ark, but it was probably originally only a fetish chest, containing perhaps a couple of meteoric stones. There may have been a rude tent to cover it, but assuredly not the tabernacle described in Exodus. Aaronic priesthood, sacrifices, prescribed feasts and so on. Nothing of that kind then existed or was conceived of. A new stage commences with the experience of settled life in Canaan. The nomadic life is ended. The people have now entered on an agricultural and city life as settlers in a land which had long enjoyed a high sense of civilization. Their new surroundings speedily tell on the form of their religion. Yahweh begins to show his superiority to the gods of the Canaanites, Baalim, according to Bude, by, quote, absorbing them into himself, end quote, and much of their worship is, now becomes his. The Canaanite sanctuaries are appropriated and converted, by legend, into holy places of the patriarchs. There is as yet no law against high places or graven images, not therefore even the law of Exodus chapters 20-23, to and Yahweh is lawfully served under every green tree. The tribes were for long a disorganised throng, weak, oppressed by surrounding peoples, without a sense of unity. The pictures of alternate oppression and deliverance after repentance in the Book of Judges are quite unhistorical. Yahweh himself is conceived of as a limited, passionate, vengeful being, arbitrary and cruel in his commands and actions, a god of battles not yet clothed with any high ethical qualities. The Israelites are still, in short, little better than a barbarous horde. With Samuel, we reach the transition to the monarchy, and somewhat higher ideas begin to prevail. The picture of Samuel, however, and after him of David, given in the history, is not according to fact. The theocratic drapery with which both characters are invested must be stripped off. Footnote. Quote, the mere recapitulation of the contents of this narrative, says Wellhausen, of First Samuel chapter 7, Makes us feel at once what a pious make-up it is, and how full of inherent impossibility. End quote. History of Israel, page two hundred and twenty-eight. footnote. The true Samuel was originally a village seer, selling his oracles for reward, and the prophetic bands that took their origin from him were companies of frenzied enthusiasts, whom the common people were disposed to look on as madmen. See Second Kings chapter 9, verse 11. The saying, Is Saul also among the prophets? is not to be understood, so some, as an expression of reverence, but rather as one of regret that so hopeful a youth should have fallen into such disreputable company. Wellhausen can hardly find words strong enough to express his idea of the low state of prophetic orders before Elijah. David. Samuel's protégé, was no doubt a great warrior and a powerful king, a poet too, and fond of music of a kind, but in no way the saint and psalmist that later tradition makes him. Quote, More easily, says Professor Cheyne, could Carol the Great have written St. Bernard's hymn than the David of the Books of Samuel, the 51st Psalm. End quote. Footnote. Aids to the Devout Study of Criticism, page 28. End footnote, Yahweh, to him, was still a local deity. The chief thing to be noticed in the intervening period, till the rise of prophecy, is the inversion of the new theory of all customary, that is, biblical, judgments on men and events. Solomon's temple had not the religious significance ascribed to it in the history, but was a private undertaking of the king, of a piece with his other schemes of aggrandisement and entirely under royal control. Jeroboam's was a justifiable rebellion, and his setting up of the calves for worship at Bethel and Dan, First Kings chapter 12, verses 28 to 29, was but a revival of the old, time-honoured worship of Yahweh in Israel under the form of an ox. Ahab is rehabilitated as, in Mr. Addis's judgment, quote, with all his faults, a brave and able king, end quote to whom much injustice is done in the history. Footnote, Hebrew Religion, page 123. He further writes, We are not to suppose that Ahab never dreamed of renouncing his allegiance to Jehovah, much less did he tempt his subjects to do so. Nor is it credible that Jezebel, his queen, seriously set herself to exterminate Jehovah's prophets, and all but succeeded in her task. He had concluded an alliance with Tyre, so he took it to be a natural thing that a temple of the Phoenician god should be erected in Samaria. End quote. Pages 130 to 131. End footnote. Even Elijah, who, though he opposed the building of a temple to Baal, is held to have had no protest to make against the golden calves. Quote, Nor again do we hear that he made any protest against the prevalent worship of Jehovah under the form of an ox. End quote. Footnote, page 131. Still less do we hear that Elijah approved of the calf worship. Is not condemnation implied in First Kings chapter 21, verses 21 to 24? End footnote. Even Elijah is not allowed by Mr. Addis to be a monotheist. Bellhausen disagrees with him here. Worship on high places and the use of images were of course perfectly legitimate. Kunin goes further and carries over most of the abominations practised by the heathen and sternly condemned by the prophets into the worship of Yahweh. Footnote: Religion of Israel, Volume 1, page 72, end Footnote. Part 2 Thus things remained till the age of the prophets, commencing with Amos, when, as the result of the enlarged conceptions wrought by the Assyrian invasions, a revolution took place in the more spiritual minds in regard to Yahweh and his worship. By a sudden advance in ideas, Yahweh is apprehended as the one sole God and ruler of the world. His character and government are righteous, ritual is condemned as displeasing to him, and his true service is seen to consist in doing justly, loving mercy, and walking humbly with God. Micah chapter 6, verse 8 Inward purity of heart is set before ceremonial cleanness. The folly of idolatry is perceived, and strenuous efforts are made to effect its overthrow. In all this, the prophets were at war with traditional usage, as well as with prevailing practice. It was something new they were introducing. Footnote Certain critics do not make the transition quite so abrupt and recognise ethical elements in the conception of Yahweh which prepared the way for the prophetic teaching. Still, monotheism begins with the prophets. They were not endowed with the power of prediction in the sense of supernatural foresight, but they gave bold, often shrewd forecasts of the future based on their reading of the times which sometimes were fulfilled and oftener were not. Their teaching and unflinching conflict and testimony for the truths of an exalted ethical monotheism mark the highest point in the Old Testament religion. As the ideas of the prophets gained strength, attempts were from time to time made to translate them into practice. The best known and most remarkable of these efforts was the Reformation of Josiah occasioned by the discovery of the book of Deuteronomy, or some earlier form of it, in the temple, as narrated in Second Kings chapter 12. This book, which embodies older laws, was composed with the express design of bringing about a centralization of worship in Jerusalem, and putting an end to the hitherto lawful worship of Yahweh and other gods at the high places. Footnote the laws in Deuteronomy chapter 18 and so on for the Levites are supposed to be a provision made for the disestablished priests of these high places. End footnote. It was hidden in the temple, then produced by Hilkiah, and presented to Josiah, on whose mind it made an extraordinary impression. The book was accepted as the authentic law of Moses. Second Kings chapter 23 verses 24 and 25. And on the basis of it, a new covenant was entered into between the king, people and Yahweh, chapter 24, verses 1 to 3. The effects were Josiah's vigorous crusade against the high places in southern and northern Israel and suppression of their worship. The cleansing of city and temple from idolatry and, when all was finished, the observance of a great Passover, chapter 23. The enthusiasm was short-lived and the writings of later prophets show that, after Josiah's death, the old evils were soon all in full force again. The nation from this point rapidly drifted to its ruin. The northern kingdom had been extinguished in 721 BC by the Assyrians. Now came the final overthrow of Judah by Nebuchadnezzar, 586 BC, and the carrying away of the people into captivity in Babylon. The temple was burned, the ark destroyed, the ritual suspended. The people were torn away from their native soil. Here came the opportunity of the priests. Let them gather up in written form for preservation what could be recalled of the old cultus and draw up a new programme of ceremonial observance for the future in case the way should be opened for them to return. So many hands set to work. Ezekiel led the way in his sketch of the temple and its ordinances in a restored land. Chapters 40 to 48. His sketch was not accepted, but one feature in it proved to be of decisive importance. In chapter 44 of his book, he had denounced the priesthood for permitting the service of uncircumcised strangers in the sanctuary. Really, it is held the ordinary custom since Solomon's time and had pronounced sentence of degradation on the unfaithful priests, assigning to them this lower rank of service, while the priesthood proper was reserved for the faithful sons of Zadok. Here, it is claimed, is the clear explanation of the order of Levites in the sanctuary in post exilian times. There are none other than these degraded priests, therefore not of older date than Ezekiel, Busy brains and pens carried forward the task of the collection of old laws, the concoction of new ones, and the working up of the whole into a grand code, represented as having been given by Moses in the wilderness, but really, in greater part, the fruit of their own invention. Thus rose the fabric of the so-called Levitical law. A history was made to suit, and the finished product was brought from Babylon by Ezra when he came to Jerusalem in 458 BC, some 78 years after the return. Fourteen years later, 444 BC, it was read, or if, as Wellhausen thinks, it was by this time joined to the older J.E. histories and to Deuteronomy, the whole Pentateuch was read to and accepted by the people as the Law of Moses. Nehemiah chapter 8 Thus. Post-Exilian Judaism was founded, and the development of the religion was completed. The temple had been already rebuilt by Zerubbabel, and everything was ready for organisation on the new lines. This altar is the hymn book of this second temple, and is mostly, if not wholly, the product of post-Exilian times. Many of the other books in the Bible, as Job, Proverbs, Ruth, Joel, of course Chronicles, are also post exilian, and the process of addition went on till possibly the century before Christ. Daniel is a book written to comfort the pious in the persecutions of the Maccabean time. End of section nine.